0: The following podcast was recorded in 2022 and is now being released for the public. Thought leadership, titles, current events, legislation, and technology may have
1: changed and evolved since it was originally recorded. But the partnerships and the relationships are there, and for me, that's critical because This is a culture change. The intelligence community is risk averse by nature. That's what we do. And so bringing folks like me into such a longstanding process to help them think about things in new and different ways in order to actually serve the DEI mission, that's huge, right? Because that is in and of itself a culture change. And we can have strategies for days. Everyone knows, you know, culture eats strategy for lunch. And so we are at the precipice, however, with this type of partnership of actually changing, you know, to, to a culture of being more inclusive.
0: The opinions and views expressed in the following podcast do not represent the views of NIU or any other U.S. government entity. They are solely the opinions and views of the speakers. Any mention of organizations, publications, or products not owned or operated by the U.S. government is not a statement of support and does not constitute U.S. government endorsement. Welcome back to the Intelligence Jumpstart Podcast. I am your host, Jane Doe. On this episode, I spoke with Stephanie LaRue and Lawrence Pace about issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in the IC. Stephanie LaRue leads efforts to advance diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility across the IC enterprise, serving as the principal advisor to the Director of National Intelligence and IC senior leadership. Stephanie represents the IC on all DEIA-related matters, including congressional oversight. Stephanie brings more than a decade of leadership and national security experience to the role, including her most recent position as the Chief Diversity Strategist for the Central Intelligence Agency. Mr. Lawrence Pace is the NRO's first agency chair to NIU. In this role, he serves as the principal liaison to NRO leadership and supports intelligence and national security professionals. In addition to his agency chair role, he leads course topics on leadership development and emerging technology. In December 2021, Lawrence was appointed as NIU's first chief diversity officer. Stephanie LaRue and Lawrence Pace, thank you so much for joining me on the Intelligence Jumpstart today. Good morning. Thank you for having us.
2: Good morning. Thank you for having us. And hosting.
0: Of course. This is great. To start, I'd like to hear about your background. Stephanie, you are a lawyer by education. Lawrence, you are an engineer. And you both are currently serving as the first person in your respective positions. Can you tell me a little bit about your time in the IC and how you came into these positions? Sure.
1: Lawrence, do you want to go first?
2: You're too kind. It has been a wonderful journey. I came into the IC summer of 2008. I came over on a joint duty assignment. I'd been with the Department of Energy, National Nuclear Security Administration for 20 plus years. And I just wanted an out-of-box experience. I had just wrapped up my one-year assignment at the Naval War College there in Newport, Rhode Island and came back, did almost a year and saw that that was an opportunity to go do something different. And it was something different because, you know, with my background working in nuclear weapons, building and tearing down weapons, it was quite different, but I found a way to see how it connected with the intelligence community.
0: Thank you, Lawrence. Looking at your bio, you really have done some, some pretty interesting and exciting work. Stephanie, can you tell us a little bit about you?
1: Uh, Sure. So uh, myself, I EOD to CIA back in 2011. And I EOD as a human resources officer, I was in my second year of law school, I think. And I was going to law school at night working full time during the day at CIA. And so I did human resources for a little bit. And when I graduated from law school, uh, I had some children. (laughs) And then I transitioned into the Office of General Counsel at CIA, where I worked in both the litigation and administrative law division. I did that for a few years. I had a a really great experience, but I, I, you know, wasn't really fulfilled, but I didn't figure that out until my oldest son started kindergarten. I I took the day off of work, put him on the school bus and realized I was incredibly unhappy and I didn't know why, it was, and it was more than just like the normal, my baby is starting kindergarten, you know, blue. And so I had a conversation with, you know, my therapist and a bunch of, you know, people that I respect and love very much. And I came to realize that I just wasn't fulfilled in my career, Um, that despite the fact that I spent all this money and time and energy and effort to becoming an attorney and breaking into one of the most difficult spaces on the planet, which is not only CIA, but being an attorney within CIA, just wasn't happy. Um, But I struggled with the decision to leave because I, you know, I felt like I carried the weight of my community on me. You know, I was one of, I think, maybe two Latinas within the office. Office of general counsel at CIA. And I know how much representation matters. And so I, I really struggled with, with leaving, you know, thinking that you know I was doing a disservice to, to you know potential, you know, folks who would be looking uh to, to see people like me in the office of general counsel. But you know, at the end of the day, I decided that my happiness was really important and that, that I could, you know, believe and support the DEIA mission anywhere else I went. And so I decided that I wanted to pursue a new career, but didn't know what that was. Thankfully, CIA has this process where you can try different jobs, right? You go on a rotation. And so I talked to one of my mentors, she was a chief diversity officer at the time. She said, why don't you try writing CIA's diversity strategy, right? You can be our chief diversity strategist. You're a strong writer. You love this mission. You've been really involved in these topics for years. Um, What do you say? And I said, absolutely. Uh, that was about four years ago, and I have not looked back since. I love what I'm doing now. That position led me to the position I'm in now, which is the chief of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility for the IC. And I'm very, very happy now. So I'm no longer feeling that, you know, what am I doing with my life? I happily put my baby on the bus every day, <laughs> you know, and I look forward to him coming, both of my boys coming home every day. So that's a quick summary of my story. You know, with what
2: Stephanie just shared, because we have been working together for a number of months. Now, you notice she has two boys. I have two boys. She was dealing with a kindergartner. And at the time of my transition from doing weapons-related work at DOE, coming back as a dad, feeling guilty Mm. that I'd missed a whole year with my son, who's now a senior in high school. So that was in the spirit of transparency. That also contributed to me wanting to do something different because it had me closer to home, and I literally, I was with him every Friday before all of the high school football games as a part of that bonding and just communicating, and it was so fulfilling because now I'm fulfilling the piece of dad, but also as an engineer and learning something new at the MRO within the Mission Integration Directorate.
0: That's amazing. I think it does make a difference. When you're happy and you love what you do, the energy actually comes through. It's really great to talk to people who are excited about what they do. So thank you. Moving on to what we're going to talk about today, the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility for national security. Back in October 2021, there were hearings and the chairman's opening statements were diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in the intelligence community are an enduring mission imperative. I'm hoping you both can speak to this. Why are DEIA programs so important to national security today?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and I I get that question so often. Uh, And I'm a data person. I, I, I love data. And I think, you know, the way I think one of the most powerful ways to do this work is to have both a qualitative and quantitative approach to DEIA, right, Um, in in any space. Uh, And so I rely very heavily on data. Uh, Recently, I read a statistic that said, I think it was a study done by Glassdoor that said that 76% of job seekers in the United States. Of uh, All job seekers, right, across all races, ethnicities, you know, d- abilities, genders, 76% of them are looking at a company's DEIA culture and their portfolio, and they really consider that when making a decision as to whether or not they want to accept a the position there, right? 76% of Americans. If 76% of Americans were to look at the annual demographic report for the intelligence community, or if they were to look at the leadership pages of all of the 18 elements across the community, they would not necessarily, they might not see something that they would want to see, for example, right? I don't know that I would find very many elements that had someone who looked like me within their leadership ranks. And so knowing that 76% of people are looking for that, and then juxtaposing that with what the IC currently looks like, that for me is the easiest example of why this is so important. If we cannot attract the workforce that reflects America If we cannot attract numbers to the intelligence community, we will not have bodies to do the job of intelligence, period. And this is just purely a numbers game. There are 76% of people that don't want to work here. How the hell are we supposed to do the job? I mean, that's the most basic function. That's the most basic answer to that question. It matters because if we cannot appeal to these people, we will not have a workforce to do the job. Secondarily, If we can't keep these people, right, we're not gonna have the workforce to do the job. We're not gonna have the diversity of thought, of experience, to get the job done, right? And when I'm thinking diversity, I I do think, you know, race, ethnicity, I think all of those, you know, the traditional protected classes, but I also think a lot about regional diversity. We have a huge influence. Northeast is very much represented in the intelligence community, but we are not very well represented when it comes to the rural South. We're not represented when it comes to rural areas generally, you know, and that's something that we need to really think about because those experiences are the experiences or similar experiences to the rest of the world, right? We are we represent a global mission. And if we don't have people that can relate to global experiences, our ability to do our job is, is compromised. And so I think Holly would leave it with with those two examples of why this matters so much. Lawrence? Yes,
2: Stephanie, I concur. It's wonderful. And, and this is what makes our partnership so important, especially with me being at the National Intelligence University. When you look across the spectrum, the faculty, staff, and the student, the demographics are definitely not balanced. So as Stephanie just mentioned about the numbers, it's something that I take very seriously. During our Executive Diversity Council meeting yesterday with our Coup and the PDD, Dr. Dixon, I was able to share that we just did our first ever survey. It was really an opportunity to do a pulse of the organization because As NIU transitioned from under the umbrella of DIA last year to ODNI, clearly there were a couple of bumps in the road and things that management was just blind. I would say blinders are often up when you think about the work and things that we do. So the survey was an initial pulse. It was a way to do a pulse of the organization just to see where we were. We had a little over 63% of the the faculty and staff that actually filled out the survey. We would receive some really important data and information telling us how we look, where we stand. And the one thing that's really stood out was how happy were they in the workplace? So you, you bring people in, you look to draw this unique talent That is being representative, we hope, of the country. Sometimes it's not, and sometimes it is. But being able to bring that uniqueness to the classroom is so important because we typically are pretty safe with the students because, you know, even through that part of recruitment or going through the application process, that's pretty fair. Still could have some improvements in that area, but it's the faculty and staff that I have been really concerned with because what does that look like when you do the door opens, they come in? How do we retain them? What is the work environment looking like? Are we offering them the appropriate training? Many times, because uh, again, I'll go back to what you heard me say earlier about the blinders. We all have biases, but how are we working through those matters? No one ever sees something the same way. And diversity of thought is so important, not just in the workplace, clearly across academia, because I often, you and I talked a little bit about that this morning, being in NIU, it has afforded me to really see and express academic freedom.
0: Right. If you don't see people that look like you or that can express themselves in a way that is meaningful to spark dialogue about, you know, difference, you're less likely to feel safe in the organization, isn't going to get the full benefit of your experience. And I haven't always considered that, uh, the importance of seeing others that look like you. You know, I first was exposed to this in undergrad. When looking at DEIA efforts in academia in general, I came across several videos that talked about the lack of diversity in the IC, and that is problematic because we do have this global mission and we don't have representation to understand all of the cultural issues, you know, of the different foreign states, which is really critical to defending our own national security. And I'm wondering, Lauren, you talked a little bit about about the first DEIA survey, but what other initiatives are you working on to build this effort across the IC and NIU respectively?
2: I am so honored, so happy to report that we stood up our first DEIA steering committee. We have 14 across the faculty and staff, we stood them up, made the official announcement back in April 2022. I did not want it to be that they would look at Lawrence Pace as the chief diversity office, and I handpicked the people. I was looking for willing workers, volunteers, but at the same time, it was important that it was a very diverse group of people. Just as important as it was to stand up the steering committee, I don't know how many times we have volunteered to lead efforts, but then... We don't equip the individuals with the tools that are needed to do their job. In July, I hosted training for all 14 members. Some had to do it virtual, but it was an in-house training that we did. And now everyone we have on board is a certified diversity inclusive professional. Having now a steering committee and also one of the things that I do on a monthly basis especially doing our observances, I get a message out to the workforce. One just went out yesterday because we are celebrating Hispanic heritage. What I use that opportunity and platform for is to provide history, background, why it's important that we honor and celebrate the legacy and things that go with that.
3: I'm Manoli Perniotakis, and I use Vice President for Research and Infrastructure. And this is this episode's Manoli Minute. In an upcoming episode, we will be talking to Dr. Raj Schoonover, formerly of the Department of State's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, state's embedded intelligence element. INR, as it is known, has a long and distinguished history, the longest of any civilian IC element, in fact. With roots in World War II's celebrated Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, INR was the analytic arm of the OSS, which is most often associated with CIA. When President Truman broke up the OSS, state received what became INR, which George Marshall retained to serve departmental needs when the other parts of OSS were reconstituted to form the Central Intelligence Group, which eventually became the CIA with the passage of the National Security Act of 1947. Although fairly small in comparison to, say, CIA or DIA, INR supports internal state needs but also has an active IC-wide role. Among its notable past leaders, one stands out. Thomas L. Hughes, who was a long-serving head of INR and advisor to Secretary Dean Rusk and President Kennedy on numerous national security issues during his tenure from 1963 to 1969, to include on Cuba, the Soviet Union, and especially on Vietnam. In 1968, Hughes commissioned a couple former INR officers to review INR's analytic performance on Vietnam since 1960, which resulted in a broad review of policymaking and the Bureau's intelligence support. An interesting insider perspective apart from the Pentagon Papers. Declassified between 2003 and 2004, the document includes a preface from Hughes in which he notes that INR's analysis on Vietnam, quote, stood out as tenaciously pessimistic from 1963 on, and that, quote, while we in INR were heated, we're unable to persuade, sway, or prevail when it came to the ultimate decisions. While serving as head of INR, Hughes was also advising his longtime friend and colleague from Minnesota, Senator Hubert Humphrey, who became vice president in 1965. Hughes wrote a remarkable memo for Humphrey around that time, arguing for a negotiated peace in Vietnam and that there would be dire impacts on the long-standing national consensus on foreign policy, as well as political impacts for the Democratic Party should the war continue. As it turned out, he was correct, effectively on all counts. After he left state in 1970, Hughes led the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace for 20 years. In 2021, Brookings published a biography of Hughes called The Last Gentleman by Columbia scholar Bruce Smith, who is a friend and colleague of Hughes. The Last Gentleman, as well as Hughes' published works of his own, are must-reads for anybody interested in the history of U.S. intelligence. Thanks again for listening to Intelligence Jumpstart. For more information on NIU, please visit our website, www.ni-u.edu.
0: at the macro level, what is the IC doing?
1: So the IC is doing a lot. If I'm being honest, you know, I have the unique opportunity to kind of see what the entire intelligence community is doing from outreach all the way down to retention, right? And so I'll break it down to a few different areas. Uh, with respect to outreach, the IC is investing ever more resources in the K through 12 um, relationships with high schools and elementary schools across and middle schools across the country, right? NSA has a fantastic program called Gen Cyber. It is a summer training program. It's about six weeks long, and it attracts Folks, kids in, you know, K through 12, and it exposes them to the cyber world. It exposes them to the intelligence community mission, to the work and to the officers. And these cyber, you know, these summer camps are all across the United States, right? We were talking about regional diversity before. That's one of the ways that we're doing that. We also have the ICCAE program, the Centers of Academic Excellence, uh, and this is a program that was you know, created by Congress, and it's it's fantastic because the goal is to help. It's a grant program whereby schools can apply for these grants, and then they would send up intelligence community centers of academic excellence within existing institutions of higher learning, right? And so the great part is that a lot of these schools that participate, they are geared towards schools that are in local and in, in remote rural areas towards they're trying to bring in students from indigenous communities as well as from other minority ser- as well as minority serving institutions to include hispanic serving institutions historically black colleges and universities and the like and those programs again are fantastic because they introduce students at the collegiate level to the ic to the mission to the work and to the people In the recruitment space, like I said, we're doing a lot too. We work, we recruit very heavily from our minority serving institutions, not just through the ICCA programs, but through a variety of other places. Um, You know, our partnerships with the White House Initiative on um, Historically Black Colleges and Universities has been very strong. Uh, We do a lot to support that initiative and to invest not just our resources, but our time and our energy into into those types of partnerships. We partner a lot with nonprofit organizations. These include organizations like Out and Equal, right? These are, you know, where a lot of employees come together and they talk about what is it we're sponsoring these conferences and these local communities to, to increase those, those networks and that exposure. We also sponsor the Blacks in Government, ProSpanica, and a number of other organizations as well. Um, With retention, we're investing a lot of funds into leadership development training for a lot of our targeted targeted demographics. Now, these leadership training programs put together are open to all officers, right? But we know that there are specific pockets of officers who may have a harder time getting access to or being prepared for certain opportunities. And so we're investing a lot of funding into leadership development programs uh, and especially our employee resource groups, right? As well as our IC affinity networks, which are IC level employee resource groups. So not just the CIA the Hispanic Advisory Council, but the Latino Intelligence Network, which has the Hispanic Latinx ERG representative from all 18 elements who come together right and work with big picture issues talk about accountability a lot. So the annual demographic report is one of our biggest reports that comes out every year. We collect the data and in an effort to be transparent, we share that data with the world. This is an unclassified report and no, it doesn't put us in the best light, right? Um, Progress has been very slow, but at the same time, this is us holding ourselves accountable, right? And we're going to be taking that to the next level. We're going to be in, implementing an wide deia maturity model that will hold us accountable for those things that we need to be doing according to executive order, presidential memoranda, best practices in the space. We're going to be assessing ourselves against that maturity model every single year, right? Uh, this is a huge wide effort that everyone, every element is, is committed to. And then I think lastly, one of the things I'll talk about is kind of the creation of my office. I see this, my office used to be known as IC, Equal Opportunity, Employment, and Diversity. But recent best practices show that these two EEO and DEIA need to be separate. You can't you can't you know combine compliance with this work because they're not one in the same. And so my you know the DNI recently she split apart these two offices. And not only that, but now my position reports directly to her. Right, I report to the Director of National Intelligence in the morning meetings. And so my ability to have access to her and to make sure she understands the ground truth and can make informed decisions about policy and all of those things. um, She's hearing that every single day. So this is just kind of a high-level overview of the many things going on across the intelligence community to support and drive DEIA.
0: Wow. It sounds like you've been
1: incredibly
0: busy since she came on board last January. Thank you. I think it's really fascinating. It sounds like a great positive experience that we're not only impacting the IC, but, but the work you're doing is impacting our communities outside the IC, and that is amazing. I'm hoping to switch topics a little bit here because both of you kind of brought up recruitment and you know we want to recruit and retain the best available talent yet our security clearance processes in some ways are kind of a hurdle to that I'm hoping that you can speak to this issue and what we're doing or or should be doing to fix this problem in some way it's well as you mentioned we're not able to get the best talent because some of our current practices are perceived as negative and we are not checking our biases
1: yeah so this is something I've been working very closely with our folks here in the, in the NCSA which is our security folks here and I will tell you the folks in that office are Incredibly dedicated to the DEI mission. Incredibly dedicated to learning where places and processes can be improved, and they've done so much already. I'd say within the eight months that I've been here, I've seen them bring me in, invite me into spaces. Right, typically security and DEI are not the best of friends, right? But this this leadership, you know, has invited me into spaces to say, "Hey, we are revamping our security vetting processes. We're taking a look at our adjudication guidelines. Would you please take a look at these things and let us know what you think? Are there places?" Places where we can improve. So they've brought me into those processes. I've made a number of recommendations, and so many of them have been adopted into these practices. So there's definitely a way to go, right? We've got a long distance to go, but the partnerships and the relationships are there. And for me, that's critical because. This is a culture change. The intelligence community is risk averse by nature. That's what we do. And so bringing folks like me into such a longstanding process to help them think about things in new and different ways in order to actually serve the DEI mission, that's huge. Right, because that is in and of itself a culture change. And we can have strategies for days. Everyone knows, you know, culture eats strategy for lunch. And so we are at the precipice, however, with this type of partnership of actually changing, you know, a, to, to a culture of being more inclusive. And so I think that's the first part that I want to say because these security folks are getting they they take a lot every single day, you know, and there are so many great officers working in that space. But I understand the criticism, you know, I I absolutely do. And I think, you know, a lot of that comes from folks not understanding what that process is like. So it's a clearance vetting process. It is it reviews, it uses a whole person concept. We're not there. These folks are not just making a decision about one piece of your life. It's looking at the entirety of your experience when making a decision as to whether or not you should have access to classified information. And that's really important. One of the things that they've been working on too is really developing partnerships with recruiters so that recruiters can better communicate to potential employees what the security clearance background investigation is going to be like, because oftentimes a number of the people who are going through this process, they might not have a lot of exposure to the IC. They might not understand the things that go into getting a security clearance, the background investigation. With these younger generations, illegal downloads is a huge problem, and you can't have downloaded something illegally within one year of your application. But if no one tells these students that, if no one tells these new applicants that, they're getting eliminated not because not qualified, but because there's something about their past that falls within a timeline that would preclude them from participating. Right, so educating the recruiters so that they know how to communicate these things that some of us might take for granted, so that they're really equipped to communicate these requirements to to folks. So that partnership with recruiters. The other thing that's really important too that we can do is the training that a lot of these security folks have. Let's make sure they're getting unconscious bias training. They're trained in cultural competence. They're trained in effective communication. They're trained in how to make sure we know what someone's pronouns are before we go out to do a background investigation or an interview so that we don't unintentionally out someone who has not yet shared their transition with their friends and family, right? So training these educators, right? But that all starts with them uh, welcoming us as DEI subject matter experts into their spaces so that we can make those recommendations. And I can tell you, at least from this level, I have seen a lot of folks being very willing to bring us into those spaces so that we can start having those conversations. And I personally am working with folks at OPM and with our security clearance folks here to start making recommendations about what types of training need to be included for everyone involved in the security clearance vetting process. And then lastly, they're also looking into the barrier analyses, right? Executive orders are requiring us to take a look at who's getting in, who's not, when, where, why, and how, and what those demographics are, right? Now, that can be problematic for some folks because the security clearance vetting information, the data is sometimes housed separately and apart from demographic data for good reason, right? We've got a number of different reasons, but In order to really understand whether or not there's something there, we need to run the data. And we have not yet done that in a lot of spaces. And so the security clearance community is starting to now look into how do we do this barrier analysis at a federal government level that we can really start to unearth the exact places where we may or may not have issues and also where places that we're doing great and we need to replicate those best practices in other places so we're just now really starting to leverage data to make sure that we are being as equitable as we possibly can but the process is tough i'm not gonna lie the process is incredibly trying it is you know, nerve wracking. It's long. It's, you know, I struggle with anxiety. It's anxiety inducing. I mean, there's, there's a lot, you know, and it's, it's a lot for anyone. And of course, you know, it's, it, it makes sense, right? Where we see the highest level of classification of things. And, and, you know, the security vetting process exists for a reason. And I tell folks all the time, you know, the number one message I walk, I, I try to give folks who are involved in a security clearance process is that no one at any point is asking them to apply less rigor to their work or to their vetting in order to achieve DEIA. No one is asking them to do that, right? That is not what we want. I want them to apply the same amount of rigor to every single person who wants access to classified information but that's exactly what I want. I want every single person to get the same amount of rigor every single time. I want to make sure that decisions are being made are being made based on facts and not being based on someone's unintentional bias, right? Or their unconscious bias or conscious bias. So that's what we're looking for.
0: Oh, great. So data is driving education. I, I like that. And I, I think that's the way it should be. Did yes. you have something to add, Lawrence?
2: I, I don't have much to add. When I tell you This is what makes my job so fulfilling, working side by side with this wonderful person, Stephanie Leroux, she touched on every touch point, the part of educating, the numbers, all of that is so critical. Through the IC STEM, I am looking for every opportunity, even with a tour that we're setting up for her in the next couple of weeks over at row, their castle. It's a technical facility, unclassed, where we'll be able to bring in K through 12, K through 16, to introduce them to these types of things. When I say things, the IC mission. But in doing that, this is where I want to put a bow on it. Not only educating them, introducing them to the arts and crafts and things that we do, but also having that conversation to remind them of the importance of their walk in life. Because if they are looking to join our esteemed workforce, understand there's rigor. There, there's a clearance process that people go through. And they should be hearing and understanding what, what comes with that. Because so many times they, they just think that you fill out an application and you just walk right into our world. And it does not work that way, which is an additional pressure on our security folks. And I ditto Stephanie's point. We're not asking for our security process to be compromised or adjusted or treated differently. It needs to maintain that rigor because we're talking about our national security at its highest level in the things that we're doing on behalf of our great country.
0: Right, right. You both brought up educating students in a recruitment pool about the process. Before I joined the IC, I worked at a law school and I managed an externship program. And one of my students, well, he interviewed and was offered a position with U.S. Attorney's Office. But then during the clearance process, he was rejected because, you know, for smoking marijuana. So if he would have known that, although it's legal at the state level in many states, it's not at the federal level and the U.S. Attorney's Office being you know, the federal prosecuting body, I'm betting he would not have been down with smoking up. I mean, this was a very prestigious externship for him. So yeah, it's incredible how much information is out there, but it's, it's not always the right information. So I want to, I want to ask you, Lawrence, you talked about the steering committee that you stood up. What are other ways that folks that didn't get chosen to sit on that steering committee? How can people from across the IC get involved in these programs?
2: I just put something out as a tasker to my steering committee, I have asked them, and I'm using this as just one example, observance months. They all are expected to have a lead month as it relates to observances. Now, in doing that, what I'm looking for them to do, and that's what we're going to be talking about at my next meeting, is that I'm not looking for them to do all of the heavy lifting. What I'm looking for is for them to partner and collaborate across the university, but not just the university. We need to be collaborating with our internal and external folks like Stephanie LaRue and the folks on the DIG side, the diversity inclusion group side. So that's what I'm looking to do is I have fostered through these efforts is getting hands-on, not just sitting in a position, action-oriented. So doing that through the steering committee, they, they have work to do. And it's going to take the partnership of reaching out to the workforce, in this case, on the university side, the faculty, staff, and students, to get them involved. Now, how I plan to really bring that all together is going to be through those brown bag lunches that I plan to host on a more regular basis. Because until you can get people at a place where they're comfortable to have conversations, whatever that may be, then you can't move this initiative and things that Stephanie and I are leading to the next level.
1: And I think kind of big picture is other ways folks can get involved. So easy things, join an employee resource group or an IC affinity network, right? Even if you're not a member of that community, it doesn't matter, right? You can support any community that that you want. The second thing I would say is to engage in speak up culture, right? I joke that see something, say something doesn't only belong to lonely luggage at the airport. It applies to exclusive language or behaviors that you see in the workplace every single day. If you see it a behavior, call it out and say, hey, not here, not today, right? Because that is part of changing the culture of the IC, right? That's part of making sure that this is an inclusive culture for every single person. And that takes a certain amount of bravery, right? To say, hey, I'm not comfortable with that, but you got to do it, right? So engage in that speak up culture. I also recommend that everyone test their biases. I don't think having a bias makes you bad. We're humans. We all have bias. That's the way our brain works. We all have biases. Having a bias doesn't make you bad. Not knowing what your biases are and not working to mitigate those biases, that in my estimation makes you bad, right? If you're going to, if something makes you bad, that's it between the two, okay? Especially when you serve a global mission that is national security. But also for myself, I'm in a position now where I'm making decisions about hiring, firing, assignment selection, promotions. If I allow my biases to go unchecked, that could have an impact on, on someone's ability to get something, to acquire something that they've otherwise earned. And that's not OK. So that bias needs to be checked. There are simple ways to do that. Harvard does this uh, implicit association test and it's free. It's online. It's personal, private. You can take it. I highly recommend everyone do it. It's not perfect, but it's a great starter, a great place to start exploring what biases you may have. And then the last thing I recommend, folks, is you don't necessarily have to join, you know, a club or anything like that. I think I always encourage folks to look for natural and organic ways to weave DEIA the into their mission. If you're an analyst, take a look at your writing and make sure that your writing is for your bias. Maybe let's not say Chinese people. Let's just say the People's Republic of China. Let's be specific with the use of our language, right? Because you never know what impact, you know, the language you use has on, has on the community. If you're an operator, make sure that you are bringing in everyone into the conversation, not just operations folks. Let's bring in the analysts. Let's bring in the science, weapons, technology folks. Let's bring in the engineers and the financial officers. Bring them onto the table every time you have the ability. So looking for natural ways to weave in DEIA values and ideals into the work that you were brought here to do. Because a lot of folks say, I was brought here to do this. I was brought here to do diversity and inclusion. It's like, yes, and there's a way to do your job in the most inclusive way possible that gets the job done and serves our country and serves this mission. That's what we need to think about every single day. How do we weave this naturally into the work and the specific mission that we were hired here?
2: This is where we are, just being able to just say it, talk about it, not dance around it, keeping it real, making people accountable, not just in meetings. I mean, if someone's doing something, there's a time and place for everything but you need to put your colleagues, the people around us, in check. It's important.
0: Absolutely. Meaningful dialogue is so important. I want to thank you both for your time today. This has been an excellent conversation, and I've learned a lot from you. And, you know, before we finish up, I have one more question for both of you, and I'd like to ask. You've both talked to a lot of folks about the DEIA programs, and I'm sure there are questions that you're like, why hasn't anybody ever asked me this question? I want people to ask me this question. So I'm wondering, can you think of one of those questions and and what would your response be to that? What do you want people to ask you?
2: That's a great question. I have to just say, I want them to be able to ask me anything. Don't overthink it. Don't feel that anything's bad. I call it, you know, when we talk about diversity of thought, people process Their brains process so differently than the person right next to them. So the question that I would say to them is, what's on your mind? Speak what's on your mind. And then, depending on how it's delivered, perhaps that that would be an opportunity to give feedback or give critique or or even say, "I, I hear what you're saying. Perhaps you could consider saying it this way or asking it this way. So that that's a that's a great question, because, I mean, I could come up with a laundry list of the things that they could ask, you know, from their work environment to their supervisor to the team that they're on their commute. It's a number of things. So that's that's my my input.
1: So I don't think I have a question necessarily that I I would like to be asked that I'm not being asked because I really do get asked everything right I, I'm, I'm lucky and I guess maybe sometimes not lucky I have the opportunity to, to ask, answer a lot of questions from a variety of different sources both internal and external but in so I don't necessarily have a question that I, I want people to ask they're not asking but I do have a question that is a trigger from when asked and so that that question for me is usually you know what's the business case for this right I hate That question, right? I do not like that question. And I don't like that question because I think when this was when DEIA was introduced as a concept, right? The the why, right? That's what we are always looking for. What's the why? And people like, well, you know, your bottom line will increase if you are more inclusive and you'll make more money. You'll be more efficient. And I think a lot of folks, a lot of practitioners led with that. Like, this is the what's in it for me to be inclusive. And One of the things that really pressures me about that is, you know, I, I don't, I don't lead with that. Like, you know, what's the business case for doing this? Because for me, I should not have to explain to you the business case for being a decent human being for recognizing the humanity in other people. I refuse to make that argument. I refuse to answer that question. I refuse to justify that question. I won't do it because I should not have to do that, right? We are so far beyond the business case. This is not, this is better for this. It's, this is the right thing to do. Respecting the dignity and the humanity of everyone in the world. Like that's just something that needs to happen. And I'm not making that argument for you. I'm not answering that question. That is the one question. And But you know, there's a lot of disagreement in the community about that, right? Some people say, well, it's natural to try to get someone to be in a place or to understand or take a position that you have. It is a persuasive technique to show them what is in it for them. And so I see that, I acknowledge it, and I agree with it to a certain extent, but there is a part of me that really struggles with having to demonstrate kind of why it's important to be a decent human being and recognize right, the humanity. Right, right. On
0: this. Excellent. Well, thank you again for your time today. This has been an enlightening conversation for me, and I hope we can continue talking about DEIA programs in the future.
2: Thank, you for, the thank
0: you for
1: inviting us. This was wonderful. I appreciate it.
2: Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Jumpstart podcast. We'd love to hear from you about what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. If you would like to learn more a specific topic or issue, send us a note at nipress at niu.odni.gov. To learn more about NIU, visit our website at ni-u.edu.